Hey, it's Dr. G. And whether you've been a longtime listener or you're new to the podcast, welcome. Have you ever felt like you wanted to start over or reinvent your life? If so, I want to invite you to tell me all about it. I really need your advice. And to reward you for your time, I'm going to be choosing nine listeners to join me on a free one-on-one relaunch game plan call. This call is designed to help you get clear on your specific goals so you can relaunch your life. To join in and be eligible for the free call, go to discover.drgordon.me. That's discover.drgordon.me and answer all the questions. I look forward to reading your responses and talking to you soon. Thanks for your help and thanks for launching your life with me. This is the Launch Your Life podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. Today on the podcast, I'm talking about the process of change, why it can be so hard, as well as some anecdotes from my childhood. As always, I welcome your feedback. Feel free to email me, drgdrg at drgordon.me, drgordon.me. For the latest episodes, go to launchyourlifepodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please take a moment to give it a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts and share widely with your friends. Last time I left you with my new medical diagnosis, a trip to California, a night terror, and some thoughts on true growth. I said this, true growth is uncovering the beliefs and stories you created as a child to make sense of perceived or real trauma. It can be tedious, painful, and meticulous work. But bringing your rational adult mind to the stories you create in your childhood is freeing. Growth work is change work. It's not only uncovering beliefs from childhood, but all the beliefs you stack through your life experiences and anything you think is true, true with quotation marks. Now, it took me decades to understand this. Further, it doesn't have to be a belief around trauma to be growth. I tend to see much of my growth through trauma perceived or real because I've experienced so much of it. And it started so early in my life. True growth for you may be realizing you like to eat candy because candy was a food reward when you were a child and it makes you feel more comfortable and at home when you eat candy or reward yourself with candy. So no matter how much you try to stop, the belief that eating candy is safe and is a reward and you deserve it will win out over your desire. The deep work for you will be to find out the events that created the belief and look at them from the perspective of your adult mind. Another way you could experience true growth is by realizing the belief or story you've created around an event may not be true. For example, let's say you have a disagreement with your mother-in-law. You've been married for years, but she always seems to be harping on you because you think she believes you can't take take care of her baby as well as she can. And I know there's a lot there, your relationship with her, your relationship with your spouse, etc. But let's just focus on you and her for the purposes of this example. What if her intention were simply to help you? What if her only way of connecting is through this communication you perceive as strained? So it's the belief or story you create around this event that gives it its meaning. Because events just happen. Here's some examples of events. My tire is flat. My plants are wilted or dead. (laughs) My mother-in-law said some words. I fell down the stairs. I won an award. I planned a trip. So by themselves, the events are neutral. It's when you assign meaning 
that is a belief or a story to an event that you start to experience good or bad elation or devastation or suffering. It is this kind of separation that has helped me to process the things that were done to me when I was a child. And as a result, I've been able to create new meaning or even make a lot of it mean nothing now. Again, this is not easy. It's simple. It's a concept, but it's not easy. It requires forgiveness and release of shame and guilt. At the end of the day, the only thing you have control over when it comes to any event is how you react to it. Children don't have a lot of impulse control. And when I was growing up in Richland, I had three main girlfriends I played with. Summers in Richland are hot. And in the late 1960s and early 1970s, we had no internet, no cell phones, no color TV, or any of the modern technology our children grew up with and we've become so accustomed to. We had to be inventive. We spent our summer days at the big pool, swimming, splashing, and proving to the lifeguards we were competent swimmers by swimming across and back the width of the pool. This led us into the coveted deep end and the diving boards. One of our favorite pastimes was kick the can. Now, it's essentially a hide-and-seek game where the person who is it sits on a coffee can, covers their eyes, and counts to some predetermined number, usually 10, and everyone hides. The person who is it seeks out the others, but still must stay relatively close to the can because if they kick the can before you touch them, you lose and you're it again. We played cat's cradle with string and all sorts of clapping games. And the four of us had a secret handshake. But from time to time, three of us would band together and declare war on one of the others, causing isolation and pain. Children can be so cruel. And I actually think this war game was my idea because it was rare I was the isolated one. But one summer, they declared war on me, and I got to experience the pain of isolation. I spent most of that summer reading in our backyard treehouse. Another summer, there was construction in the court. Now, the bulldozers and earth movers dug a huge hole in the middle of the court, and there was a mound of dirt to play on. All of the neighborhood children, we created a house in the dirt. with We sculpted dirt, sculpted walls and doors, these tiny things, and it was just all pretend, right? But one of my neighbors showed me, in no uncertain terms, the location of the bathroom. Now, I must have been between four and six years old, maybe seven at the oldest, and I have always been very literal. So when she said this, that this was, this was the bathroom, I took her at her word and used it as a bathroom. So I squatted there on the mound of dirt in the hot summer sun and proudly moved my bowels in this new and different bathroom. So when the neighbor girl found my deposit, she was angry and called out, who pooped here? Now, of course, I had no problem fessing up to the act with an exclamation of, you said it was the bathroom. Shortly after that incident, the construction was, was completed and we had our court back for our regular summer activities. Sunset during the summer was around 9.30 p.m. and we had to be home by sunset. We spent long summer days outside riding our bikes, exploring the banks of the Columbia River and imagining our future life. I was quite attracted to one of my girlfriends and even back then, I knew I liked girls. I didn't know anything about social norms and expectations, but I loved her and I just knew we were going to grow up and get married. And I told people, I used to tell everyone, it just felt normal and natural. I was quite a tomboy and I liked trucks, dirt, climbing trees, and generally anything my mom and dad said a girl couldn't do. I always had the attitude of, I'll show them and set out to do it anyway. 
I also have this deep gift of focus and tenacity when it comes to a problem or learning how to do something. It's how I learned to ride a bike, skateboard, understand math, and read. In fact, reading came really easy to me. I started learning to read in first grade at Christ the King Elementary School. So we were members of Christ the King Parish. It was less than a block away. And since my mom was raised Catholic and went to Catholic school, she continued her tradition of Catholicism for her children. Now, Christ the King School is a brick building set on one of the best hills in town. In the spring and summer, we all rolled down the hill feeling dizzy, laughing, and making big grass stains on our clothing. In the winter, we'd walk over with our Christmas sleds to race down the hill, lug them back up again. The school itself consists of two floors and a basement, doubling as a bomb shelter. It was quite normal to see the distinctive bomb shelter sign on the walls and the floor of the building. As I recall it, there were classrooms on every floor and the administration wing was on the first floor. A quick Google street view showed me its outward appearance hasn't changed at all. My first grade class was in the basement where the classrooms opened to the expansive asphalt playground on one side and the creepy cement floored basement on the other. Almost all of the teachers were nuns wearing black and white habits. Most of them were quite stern, but not Sister Mary, my first grade teacher. Now, truly, I don't really remember her name. And one of my friends said it was Sister Roberta, but for the sake of this story, let's call her Mary because I don't have any photos or anything. So she was nice and, cl and inclusive. She was beautiful. She smiled a lot. I formed a really deep connection with her and I invited her to our house for dinner and she came. I proudly took her to every nook and cranny of our home. And I learned phonics in first grade, so I'd bring home my lessons, the papers, and I'd teach them to my brother. So he's just two years younger than me, but I was five or six, he was three or four, and I recall sitting next to him and teaching him everything I learned each day. So I'd just bring it home, and I'd teach it as I taught to him. I told him it was easy, and he could do it, and he could learn it. And he did. My parents were astounded. My mom told me I was quite patient with him and just made sure he understood each concept before moving on. So he was able to start kindergarten with the ability to read. What an advantage he had. My parents appreciated music from bluegrass to classical and almost everything in between. My father played the guitar, banjo, and ukulele, and sometimes he would come home from work and sit down and just play songs for us. Now, I was a somewhat precocious child, and somehow I learned how to play ukulele, and I was good at it. I learned a song so well, I played it for Sister Mary when she was at our house. This led to an invite to play at the convent for all the nuns. So a few days later, I walked to the mysterious building known as the convent and knocked on the door. I was ushered into a, the dining room containing what appeared to be a very long rectangular table, and each seat was occupied by a lady, most wearing habits. The way I remember it, there were at least 20 women sitting around the table. The lighting was dim. The windows were high up on the wall and they let in just a little bit of filtered light. And even with the lights on, the room was dingy and cramped. I carried my ukulele as my favorite nun showed me where to sit and sing. The chair was high up so everyone could see me. I was terrified, but I knew my song and I performed it crouching over my ukulele. So I have no idea what the song was. I also doubt there were 20 nuns around the table. But in that moment, I had so much fear. I sang the song and I hated the way I felt. So I never went back inside the convent and it continued to be a mysterious fixture until I left Richland. 
In the winter, we took our sleds to Christ the King Hill, and we spent all day sledding and lugging our sleds back up. And one winter, I was out after dark with two of my brothers, and we had so much fun, we just didn't come home. And we knew we were supposed to come home at sunset. So the sun set, we kept on sledding, it was dark, and we knew we should go. But in those days, when your parents wanted you to come home, they would just stand on the porch and yell your name. And even though the hill was close, we didn't hear her. And when we finally arrived home, mom was so mad. She was frightened because she just didn't know where her kids were. And we didn't respond to her calls. So she yelled and screamed about how we're not supposed to stay out late. And then she beat us all on the backside with a wooden spoon. And we never stayed out late again, but we were spanked plenty by both parents. But being beaten with a wooden spoon was just a whole new low. And it really stung. She was in a frenzy. And she wailed on us. So the fun times of sledding down the hill with my brothers became yet another horror brought about by our unstable mother. She was complicated. As I've said before, she had four children before she was 25. And she became isolated from her support system when she moved from California to Washington State with my father. And because she never dealt with the horrors of her own upbringing, the patterns she witnessed and established as a child spilled over into her adult life. She took many secrets to her grave. Talking to her was difficult. She told us never to speak about our family outside the house, and she often simply shut down when I tried to find out about her past. She never asked me if I wanted to go to ballet class. She simply enrolled me when I was about five, and this leotard tights tutu frou-frou was diametrically opposed to the tomboy I was becoming. I didn't mind ballet, but I simply didn't love it. And through ballet, over many years, I developed a deep hatred for my body. It wouldn't do what I wanted it to do. I was bigger than the other girls, and I was never flexible. But I had probably one of the most embarrassing moments of my life in ballet. So everyone farted in my house, right? Dad farted. And anytime he wanted to, and he set up this culture that it was okay to fart whenever. So everyone in our family farted whenever they felt the need, and it was simply no big deal. In fact, no one even said, excuse me. And sometimes in ballet class, we'd sit in a circle on the floor, and there we were in our pink tights, black leotards, pink waistbands, all in a circle. And as we were stretching, I farted. Now, this wasn't just a little teeny poot, right? It was a big, window-shaking, big-ass fart. And of course, everyone laughed at me. Embarrassed, I had no idea what I'd done wrong. It was just how things were done. And in that moment, I really felt betrayed by my family, my father, for not explaining social expectations, and it never happened again. Of course, life is a series of corrections, especially as we're growing up. I often think I grew up sheltered and backwards. And I did, but still I was privileged. Even in the house of many horrors, there were good days. Although I did spend as much time as I could away from the house, at my friend's house or outside wandering, because they can't abuse you when you're not there. It was the nights that frightened me because I had no control over what happened. And during first and second grade, I developed cold sores all over my face. They came on intermittently, but they tracked from my mouth to my cheek, to my nose, up my nose, all the way up to my eye. And knowing what I know about childhood sexual abuse now, this is a glaring red flag. But my parents either didn't know or com were complicit in a cover-up. Doesn't matter now, I can't do anything about it. 
But my brain did its job of protecting me. The gaps in my memory protected me from reliving the horrors of what was done to my tiny body and developing psyche. And imagine if it didn't, I'd be reliving the trauma daily through childhood memory because your brain doesn't know the difference between real and imagined. And remembering a traumatic event is the same as experiencing it over and over and over. And this is why we have PTSD. So my brain prevented this by walling off the physical memory and allowing me to be a child. Next time on the Launch Your Life podcast, I'll continue with my childhood, the house of many horrors, and the time I woke up in fifth grade. If you like this episode, please subscribe so you won't miss any and share with your friends and on social. Please, please, please leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcast so more people can find it. And if you really like it, please feel free to donate to my Venmo at Dr. Gordon, D-R-G-O-R-D-O-N. And help me with my market research. Fill out the questionnaire at discover.drgordon.me. And to thank you for your time, I'll be inviting 10 of you who completely fill out the form to a free relaunch game plan call. And during this call, I'll help you uncover what's keeping you stuck and what's keeping you from relaunching your life. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.